0: And I wanted to, I really wanted to take this moment to, to just get you, Emmy is on fire. She absolutely is on fire. And um, really, really, I, I feel like God has undone something. It's kind of taken the cork out of Emmy somehow. And uh, really has. And I feel like tonight she is going to release something and deposit something in our hearts um, that is absolutely profound. And so, Father, we want to open our hearts Open our hearts, Father. she I know that she takes these things unbelievably seriously. She's a perfectionist. She wants to get things right and to say things right and to convey your heart profoundly, Lord. And I thank you, Father, for her. And I thank you for Graham but Father, and her fam- their family. But, Father, I thank you for Emmy and what you're doing in Emmy at the moment. And I, pr- I pray that she would be a catalytic voice into our hearts tonight. That, Father, the fire that she's carrying, I pray, would spill out into our hearts, and set us ablaze in your amazing name. Amen. Bless you. Bless you, man, Emmy.
1: Hello. Oh, there we go. Um, Well, uh, if I haven't met you before, my name is Emmy. My husband, Graham, and I serve on the eldership team here at Glenridge. And I was sitting there thinking, actually, probably from about 2 o'clock this afternoon, why did I say yes? And why do we ever say yes? It's because Jesus is on the throne and it's not actually about us, it's for his glory. And, um, and so we say, yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait for you because your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts. And so that's why we say yes. Um, so we continue on in our series that we've been doing of Joshua and um, of claiming our inheritance and taking ground in God And for us as a family, for me personally and us as a family, um, this has been a very profound series, and I feel like it's been a word in season for us as a church, and so well done to Stan for opening up um, this book and bringing it to life for us and really helping us hear God in our own lives and um, with what he has for us. So we're going to jump straight in. So. Right in the middle of the book of Joshua, in chapter 15, is where we're going to jump in. It's a four-verse story, and um, it's in the midst of all the divisions of the tribal allotments, the land divisions um, for the people of Israel, according to their families. And it's this um, seemingly random story of a bride, a groom, and a father. But I think there's a bit more to this story than what meets the eye. So... We are going to have a look at that, so tonight what we're going to do, we're going to jump into the story and we're going to just try and understand what's happening there in the moment and then we're going to take a step back and we're going to look at the people in the place and just see does, does anything about this story maybe sound familiar or can we draw a parallel from this story to maybe another story that we know and then lastly we'll take a further step back and we'll um, see how this story can speak into our lives today. And just ask the Father to speak to us into our lives. So um, we are going to jump straight into Joshua 15, starting in verse 16. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles. And Caleb said, the one who attacks Debir, the city formerly known as Kiriath-Sephir, and captures it, I will give him Aksaw, my daughter, as a wife. Um, I love this story because right off the bat, it's like something straight out of a Disney movie. It's like the valiant knight who comes in and slays the dragon and wins the princess um, and wins her hand as a reward for his victory. Um, So that's just kind of the feel of this story for for tonight. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. So he gave him Axel, his daughter, as a wife. And commentators say Othniel had always loved Axel. So he jumped at the opportunity to fight and win this battle so he could win this bride to be his own and to have her as his own. And it came about when she came to him, she persuaded him to ask her father for a field, so she alighted from the donkey. So the bride and the groom, they're actually they're leaving the, uh, the bride's house. So the groom has come to claim his bride and they're leaving the father's house and they're basically going for their wedding night. And um, what happens, she actually persuades her husband to allow her to quickly hop down and ask her dad for one more thing. So it says she hastily, suddenly leaps, um, leaps down from her donkey and she kneels humbly before her father. And then her father says, Caleb said to her, What do you want? Other translations say, What can I do for you? What would you like? His response here is not out of irritation, what do you want? He's attentive to his daughter. His response is open. It's generous. What would you like? What can I do for you? He was very attentive. He was watching her. He was watching what was happening. And verse 19, then she said, give me a blessing or give me another gift. Do me a special favor, some translations say. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. So basically, she's saying, thanks so much for the wedding and the wedding present, you know, the Negev, um, but really so grateful, really appreciate it, um, but actually, can we have more? Um, you've already given me land, but can you please also give us springs? So some commentators speak about how Axa is quite brazen and quite spoiled in asking her father, who's already been so incredibly generous for more. But I tend to see Axon not as a child who is taking liberties with her father, but a child who is taking responsibility over her inheritance. And this falls right in line with the series that we've been in of claiming our inheritance. We need to be claiming our inheritance as individuals so that corporately together we can be taking ground in God and running into all he has for us. So Aksa is taking responsibility over her inheritance. She's thinking ahead, and this is the beautiful thing. She knows the favor that she has with her father. And this is great. This is the last sentence of verse 19, her father's response. So he gave her the upper springs, and he gave her the lower springs. He doesn't just give her one area with springs. He doubles the portion of her extra blessing. He gives her two very valuable pieces of land, the upper springs and the lower springs, so that her inheritance can be watered from both sides, the top and the bottom. And these springs would enable the newlywed couple to be fruitful, to multiply, and to cultivate the land of their inheritance. Okay, so there's our little story. So we're going to take a step back and we're going to take a look at the people and the place. And just see if we can see a parallel between this story and maybe another story we know. So um, the place is Debir. This is the place of victory. And it was very fascinating looking into, you know, you can just um, look in your Bible app and say, what does this name actually mean? Um, So that's where a lot of this has come from. It's just looking and trying to dig deep and say, God, is there anything more to this story? Um, so the name of, the, of Debir, it's actually the nickname that Israel used for the section of the temple where God's spirit dwelt, the Holy of Holies, which was separated by the rest of the temple by a veil, which was like a huge, heavy drape that um, created a barrier between God's presence and God's people. So that's our place. And now we've got Caleb, the father. His name means the faithful one and he's the one who offers the bride. And then we've got Othniel, the bridegroom, who is the victor of our story. And in Judges 3, it gives us a bit more information about who he is. It says that the spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and he is raised up as Israel's deliverer, and he becomes the first judge over the nation of Israel. And he was a man who brought peace to the land and peace to the people. He is from the tribe of Judah, and his name, means the Lion of God. And now we've got Eksa, our bride, who is Caleb's only daughter. She was deeply cherished by her father, the apple of his eye, it says. And her name has two meanings, adorned and bursting the veil. And we're going to talk about those a little bit more just now. So here's the story. We've got the Holy of Holies, the city of Debir, that had been closed to Israel. But because the Lion of God, Othniel, fought and won the battle, he opened up a way, giving them access. And because of the victory, the bridegroom is coming back to claim his inheritance and claim his bride. And the faithful one, the father, gives a special gift to the bride, a gift that will bring life and equip her to be fruitful in her inheritance. Is any of this ringing a bell? Does it sound slightly familiar? Kevin Holleran says that the Bible is one book telling one story that culminates in one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament prepares the way, and he points us to Christ, but in a way that shows a bit of a shadow, where the New Testament, once Jesus has come, reveals and explains who Jesus is. Jesus is the reality, not the shadow, that we get to experience now. So the story of the bride and the groom and the father is like a shadow, a sign and a symbol of the reality that we live in now, in and because of Jesus. Where Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the great deliverer, the Prince of Peace, the ultimate judge over all the earth, whose victory at the cross over sin and death, it tore the veil of the Holy of Holies, forever giving us access to the, to the Father through him. And he is coming back for his bride, which is us, the church, who is adorned with the splendor of God in Christ. And we are called to live lives that are bursting the veil between heaven and earth. And we've got an inheritance to claim, but this is an inheritance not of land, it's of people. And the extra gift the Father gives to us, to the church, is the Holy Spirit who equips us and enables us to fulfill our calling to bring life, to the desert places of people's lives. Are we seeing the parallel, hey? More than meets the eye. Okay, so we're gonna take, take one more step back and let's just unpack this story a bit further. And we say, Father, thank you for your word. Father, open our eyes that we could see you. Open our ears that we would hear your voice. Open our hearts and our minds that we would understand you, that we would know you more, Lord God. Speak to us tonight, Father. We are yours. We are open. We humble ourselves, and we say, speak to us. In Jesus' name. So the title of my preach tonight is Springs in the Negev, an Axaw people. So the big question I wanted to look at tonight is, what does it look like to be an Aksaw people? Aksaw was the bride in our story, and we are the bride of Christ. Now this young bride, she was mindful of three things in our story. Her calling, she knows that she is called to claim and to cultivate the land and to be fruitful and multiply. She knows her context. She knows that her inheritance, the land of the Negev, it was a dry and arid place. It was a desert and she was going to need springs in the desert if she and her family were going to be able to grow and sustain life. And then she knew her creator, she knew the kindness the goodness, the faithfulness, the generosity of her father, and the favor that she has with him. So those are our three things. She knows the calling to claim her inheritance. She knows the context and the need of that inheritance. And she knows the creator who gave it to her. So calling, context, creator. So calling, so the name Axa, as I mentioned earlier, it has two meanings, adorned and bursting the veil. We are called as the bride of Christ to be adorned with the splendor of God. And Ezekiel 16 um, tells so beautifully and it describes amazingly what God does when we are in a relationship with him. So I'm going to read um, starting in verse 8 to 14 and I'm just going to pick up a few things from those verses if you want to listen. Um, Starting in verse 8, I entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. Then I bathed you, I anointed you, I also clothed you, I adorned you with ornaments and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. You were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty. Your beauty was perfect because my splendor which I, de- which I bestowed upon you, declares the Lord God. So when we get saved, we are a new creation, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, adorned in the glory of God. And this is all the work of Jesus. It has nothing to do with us. I made you mine. I made you beautiful. I made you noticeable. And it was because of me and my glory that I put on you. The beauty of God's people, which is us, is the splendor, the magnificence, the glory, the glory, of the living God that is on us and in us. And when we allow him to shine through us, through our words, through our actions, through our lives, this beauty makes the world stop and take notice. So the more time we spend with him, the wonderful thing that happens is the more we become like him. And the more we become like him, it's his presence in our lives that overflows and pours out of us for others. Um, I've told this story recently. Um, it's happened about two, two or three weeks ago. At the end of our bed, we've got one of those plush blankets that, whatever you put on it, it leaves an imprint, so you can see whatever's been on it—the book or oh, I see you're wearing your jeans today. You can even see the pocket imprint on there. And I was sitting, I was just sitting on my bed, and I was praying and I was reading the Word. I was really just enjoying time um, with the Lord. And I, I said out loud, "I said, Jesus, I actually want you to walk into my bedroom." right now, and I want you to come and sit right here with me on this blanket. I want to just be with you. I want to know that you're right here with me. And then when I open my eyes, I want to look down, and I want to see the imprint that your bum made on my blanket. And um, maybe a little cheeky, I don't know. And so when when I open my eyes, I look down, and there my blanket lay, just as it had been, undisturbed. But um, what I felt God say to me was, don't worry about the imprint that I'm going to leave on your blanket. Rather, take courage in the fact that I'm leaving an imprint in your heart. And um, so I realized how much greater and truly supernatural is the imprint that Jesus makes in our hearts and in our lives when we spend time with him daily. Praying, reading his word, worshiping him, talking to him, keeping company with him while you're driving, thinking about him. But we don't spend time with Jesus so we can tick the good Christian box. We spend time with Jesus because there's no greater place to be than in his presence. We spend time with him to enjoy him and to know him. And the divine daily exchange that occurs when we spend time with him is that we become more like him. Um, one of my best friends from varsity in America, her name is Chris, she actually lives in Pretoria. And um, her kids go to the same school as Clinton Ellen's kids. Um, if you don't know Clinton Ellen, they were at Clinton for many, many years. She's also an American. And um, they, about four or five years ago, went up to Pretoria. And so now these two friends of mine, from one from my varsity days and one from my South African Glenridge days, are now friends and they're hanging out and they're going for coffee together and I always hear about it because crystal phone, I've just had tea with Ellen. It is the funniest thing. I feel like I've just spent the entire morning with you. Things that she says, the way she says them, um, the words she uses, it reminds me so much of you. And I kid you not, five minutes later, I'll hear from Ellen. I've just spent some time with Chris. It's the funniest thing. I feel like I've just hung out with you all morning because so much of what she does, her mannerisms, the way she talks, how she uses her hands, she says, I feel like I've just spent time with you. She reminds me so much of you. And why is that, friends? Why is that? It's because we've spent time together. We've spent time in each other's presence. We've journeyed together. Lots of laughter. A few tears along the way. And in the process, we become more like each other. We rub off on each other. And when we spend time with Jesus, to know him and to enjoy him, in the process, he rubs off on us and he leaves his imprint in our hearts and in our lives. So that what I'm offering the world is less of myself and more of Jesus. And what I'm offering my workplace is less of myself and more of Jesus. And what I'm offering my husband and my children is less of Jesus. I mean, <laughs> that's actually true this week. I've been so stressed about preaching. is like, I can't wait until 8 o'clock on Sunday to have my wife back. But hopefully, um, maybe after tonight, what I'm offering my kids and my husband is less of me and more of Jesus. And as amazing and as wonderful as I do think I am, to offer people Jesus in my interactions with them is going to leave a far greater and lasting imprint and impact than I ever could. And it's because of the beauty in his pre- of his presence in our lives that people will notice. We need to be men and women walking, adorned with the splendor and the glory of God. As those who have been with Jesus, it speaks about in Acts 4, And Jesus' presence in our lives, it can be perplexing, yet it is deeply attractive and totally compelling for others. He is this Moorishness of us to the world around us, and he leaves people wanting more, hungry for more, thirsty for more, because what they have seen and experienced in us. We are called to be a people adorned, and we are called to be a people who are bursting the veil. We are living in the victory of Christ. He is already one. The veil has already been torn by the power and the victory of Jesus. And we as believers, we carry that resurrection power so that we can be bursting the veil between heaven and earth because we are called to be lights in a dark world. We are called to be salt in a decaying world. We are called to be life in a dying world. We are called to be the foretaste of the kingdom of heaven here on earth, on this world, right now. So we are called to be adorned and we are called to be bursting the veil. We need to be a people who know our calling, and that is our calling. Okay, thanks. Um, So we are called to also be, like Aksa, a people who know the context of our inheritance. Her inheritance was the Negev, and she knew the context of her portion was dry, it was arid, it was a desert land. As believers, we are co-heirs with Christ, Roman tells us, which means the nations are our inheritance. The ends of the earth are possessions because that's what Jesus has promised in, in Psalms. And But unlike what we've seen in the book of Joshua, where the promised land is divided up amongst the tribes of Israel, our inheritance in Jesus is not land. It's people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. People are our inheritance from the one right in front of us, the one who's far from us. So what is the context of our inheritance? What is the landscape of people's hearts? And um, I want to turn to Ezekiel 37 to answer the question, what is the context, what is the landscape of people's lives and their hearts in the world today? This is in verse 1 of Ezekiel 37. It says, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of a valley. And it was full of bones, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? That is what we're asking ourselves tonight. Can these bones live? Jumping to verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, behold, this is what these bones say. They say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Right there, that right there is the context of our inheritance. This is the landscape of people's souls completely cut off from all life and all hope. Verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open up your graves and cause you to come out from them, my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. This world is a dry and weary land. It is a desert region just like the Negev. And you and I, the church, we are called to prophesy life to these dry bones. We are called to cultivate the soil of people's lives with the seed of the gospel and the power of the name of Jesus. We are called to water that seed with his victorious life that flows from the throne of heaven through our lives. And we are called to trust God and ask him to bring the growth, to bring life, and to bring the fruits. In people's lives. Every day for us is Easter. We have the risen Jesus living inside of us. We have his resurrection power moving through us. And the message of hope we carry as God's ambassadors on the earth is that Jesus is alive and in him we live. That's the good news and that is the gospel. We need to have people who go so people experience life. Gospel, go So people experience life, gospel. So as the church, and I did make that up quite recently, I was was like, thank you, Lord, that's a nice little handle. So as the church, our context calls us to be and to bring the life of God here on earth. We are called to be and to bring hope in desperate situations. Like Rosie, we heard from her last week bringing the hope of Jesus in Iraq, in Syria, in Turkey, through medicine. We are called to be and to bring love in the midst of hatred, comfort and joy in moments of deep grief and trouble. We as a church, we are called to be and to bring peace in the chaos and flux and anxiety. I love the word that came forth tonight. And we can be and bring peace into chaos. It's because Jesus lives inside of us. And we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he operates in the frequencies of heaven where there is order because Jesus is the one who's on the throne. We are called to be and to bring kindness into the lives and the hearts of people who are hurting. From a child who spilled their milk, I'm speaking to myself and my own reactions as a mom, being, bringing kindness in that situation. Or to a family who's journeying through loss who needs a meal taken to them being and bringing kindness. We are called to be and to uh, bring goodness in the presence of evil, to be and to bring gentleness in the face of fear and violence, to be and to bring mercy where punishment is deserved and sometimes that looks like being unoffendable, where we extend grace and forgiveness rather than taking offense and holding a grudge where we are slow to anger, where mercy triumphs over judgment. We are called to be the good news of Jesus. We are called to bring the good news of Jesus to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. We are called to be a people like Aksa who know the context of our inheritance. And then we are called to be a people like Aksa who know our Creator. He gave us that inheritance. We need to be people who know and go to the Father. So how do we do that? Well, Axel was off on her honeymoon. They were literally going to consummate her marriage, um, their marriage. And I'd say that was like a pretty inconvenient time to stop where they were going. But she knew her calling, and she knew the need of her context. So she quickly got down off her donkey, and she knelt before her father, and she asked him for springs. So we need to be able to stop what we're doing and allow ourselves to be inconvenienced. We need to humble ourselves before the Father. We need to ask him to equip us and to empower us with the streams that flow from the throne of heaven so that he can water the desert places in our lives and the desert places where we're headed. We are called to be and bring the springs of the Father into the desert situations and into the dry bones of people's lives. And the only way will be that taste of heaven on earth is if we let the living water and springs from the Father flow in and through us and allow him to be the one who's making the lasting impact and imprint on people's lives um, lives and hearts through us. Um, when Axel went to her father, she went with such freedom it's because she knew his heart. So in this story, this is what we see of the Father. We see the favor of the Father. We see the attentiveness of the Father, And we see the generosity of the father. She had no fear when she went and asked her father for more because she knew her father's hearts and she knew the favor that she had with him. I love the word that uh, Corneille brought about um, our heavenly father giving good gifts to his children. And in Matthew 7 verse 8, here's another story about what it looks like when a father gives good gifts. The so what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And in the same account of Luke in chapter 11, it says, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Maybe you haven't walked in the favor of an earthly father. Maybe you've had the most amazing dad ever. But both of them are considered evil compared to our heavenly father. How much more favor do we walk in with our heavenly father? It says in Romans 8 that he gave his son as a sacrifice. It says, he who did not spare his own son... But he gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? All things. That is the favor of the Father. And we also have the attentiveness of the Father. As soon as Aksa got to him, he was already saying, what would you like? What can I do for you? What do you need? And Psalm 121 speaks of the attentiveness of the Father. It says, he who watches over you will neither sleep nor slumber. He won't fall asleep, he won't even get drowsy. He is attentive to you. His eyes turn towards you, his countenance, his face is, turns to, is turned towards you. And then finally we see the generosity of the father where he provides more than what she ev- even asked for. She just asked for springs and he provides upper springs and lower springs so that all of her inheritance would have access to water. With the upper springs, the Father empowers our lives supernaturally with gifts and with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the lower springs, the Father equips our hands naturally through skills and training and talent. But whether it's natural talent or it's supernatural ability, it all comes from the generosity of the Father's hand anyway. So that no matter where we are, No matter what situation we find ourselves, when we join the great story of our Creator, we can trust that He will provide all that we need. He'll give us the tools for the task to bring a dead and dried up world back to Himself and back to life. As the practical love of Jesus and the living water of heaven flows through us and it nourishes the driest of souls and the most barren of situations, we need to be bold in our asking, We need to be expectant in his presence and we need to be courageous in our going because he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Why? According to his power that is at work within us. And that is the beauty and the generosity of the father's heart. And this isn't just a once-off encounter with the father. It is constantly and daily spending time with him. We've already spoken about that. Humbling ourselves before him, asking him for more. This season we are in as a church um, has just created this deep hunger and thirst for God, like the deer who pants after streams of water. So our souls are yearning for the living God, yearning for him, longing for his presence, hungry for his spirit, desperate for more of him, individually and as a community. Jean Guthrie, when she came here, she said um, a few things that have really stuck with me. She said, um, there's a big difference between having a well inside of you and having rivers flowing through you. And then she said, complacency is the sleeping pill of the church. Friends, I feel like this is a wake-up call for us. I feel like the Father is saying, get up and get ready. God is not selecting his elite Avengers team to fight the end game. I can't wait to see the movie, by by the way. I haven't watched it yet. Don't tell me anything. This is not a time when God is raising up gifts who are operating. But rather, I'm convinced this is a time when God is raising up a priesthood who are operating in the gifts because we're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's you and me. We are the priesthood. Smith Wigglesworth said, May God mold us all to believe that it is possible now not only for the rivers, but also the mightiness of his boundless ocean to flow through us. People have been prophesying and dreaming and having visions of this tidal wave of God that's coming. We actually even had a word this morning that the tide is rising. I think for the last 10 years, we've been trusting and waiting. We're like standing on the shoreline. We're like, I think it's coming. I think it's coming. Is that the tide? I can feel the mist. I can feel the mist. <laughs> 10 years, we're waiting for this jolly tidal wave. Desperate for it because we're hungry for more. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing word. I love it. But I'm getting the sense that we are not meant to be standing on the shoreline, waiting and wondering when this tidal wave of God is coming. In fact, with, with each passing day and with trembling in my spirit right now, I am growing more and more convinced that with the mightiness of his boundless ocean flowing through you at the front, I'm spitting. And the mightiness of his boundless ocean flowing through you at the back. And the mightiness of his boundless ocean flowing through everyone in between, from the youngest to the oldest, from the newest Christian, to the believer who's been walking with Jesus decade after decade after decade. I am convinced that with the mightiness of his boundless ocean, flowing through the priesthood of all believers that we you and I we are the tidal wave we are the tidal wave in God that is going to sweep people up because the waters that flow from the throne of heaven are flowing through us and out of us and when the mightiness of his boundless ocean of his presence and his power is flowing through each and every one of us together in him we will become the tidal wave that overturns nations for the gospel. (laughs) Revival, revival starts in us. We are the tidal wave. It starts in you. It starts in me. And revival in its essence, Roy Hessian says, is when the power of his spirit is demonstrated in our hearts, in our lives, in our hands, as the victorious life of Jesus fills us and overflows through us to others. I don't want to stand up here and hype anybody up. Our message to the world is not in the persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. So that people's faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. It's time to be strong, friends. Let your heart take courage. Let's be bold in our asking. Let's be expectant in his presence. Let's be courageous in our going and totally blown away as we see God moving. The lame walk, the blind see, the hungry are fed, the sick are healed, the dead are raised, the gospel is preached, the lost are saved, the widows are cared for, the orphans are adopted into families. The broken are loved, and Jesus is glorified. This is how I want to answer someone when someone asks me, How is your day? So what does it look like to be an Axaw people? When we know our creator, we will be Messiah-centered. We will be a Messiah-centered people captivated by Jesus and his story. When we know our calling, we will be mission-hearted people compelled by love for the one in front of us and the one who's far from us. When we know our context, we will be moment-minded people catapulted by power to be and to bring the springs in the wasteland. So I've got a picture, if we're ready, this is what the Negev looks like. And here's what the Negev looks like when the springs water its land. We are called to be and to bring the springs in the Negev. We are called to be an exile people. Amen. Amen. <laughs>